0: Good morning. Hey, my name is Brandon. One of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. As he said, we uh, have been in a series in First and Second Samuel, just making our way uh, through it. Uh, Samuel, First and Second Samuel, is part of what we call the Old Testament, which is the Bible that comes uh, before Jesus, and it's um, and it's hard. It's about this nation, Israel, who wants a king. Not any king, a king like the nations who would go out and fight for them and be victorious for them. And so God gave them what they wanted, a man named Saul, but it didn't go well. He was a king like the nations and now he is in decline as God is raising up a new man named David. And so today we're going to keep following this Saul-David story. Where Saul is standing in complete opposition to David, but the question is Why? Why? Uh, And it's going to bring up something. Our text, this interplay between David and Saul, it's going to bring up something today that almost every one of us in this room struggles with. Although, almost none of us know it. Something that Bertrand Russell, a fairly famous 19th, 20th century philosopher, said is one of the most potent causes of unhappiness. Something that is dangerous Dangerous because often it remains invisible, hidden beneath the surface of our soul. Something that, like diabetes, what a nurse once called uh, or said to me is the silent killer because it just sits under the surface, behind the scenes, spiraling until it's too late. Because that's how envy works. That's how it works, it lurks in the shadows of our souls. Waiting to pounce. It's not like um, anger, right? Anger, if, if anger is a struggle, if anger is the issue, uh, it's generally speaking up front and it's on the surface. All right, it's pretty, uh, when, when you're angry, it's obvious. All right, but, but no one, I've never heard anybody say this. Hey, how, how was your day? My day was good. It was good. I mean, I had a, I had a fit of envy around noon. Um, other than that, it was fine. Like, no one's ever said that, because it's not on the surface. It lurks in the shadows. So here's what we're going to do today. Uh, We're going to look at David first through the lens of Saul, and we're going to see what envy looks like. And then we're going to look at David through the lens of Israel, and we're going to find out what to do about it. Sound good? Let's go. Verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And so here in verse 6 is the, is, is the, the setting. Saul, David, they're coming back from taking down Goliath, this giant of a man, and the women come out, singing songs of praise. And every college kid in America said amen. Verse 7. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? now when we when we read verses seven and eight right here, and we, we are to put ourselves in Saul's shoes,' it's pretty, uh, it's pretty natural for us to read this as contrasting David and Saul, right, Saul thousands, David, ten thousands. It's It's fairly um, it seems on the surface pretty understandable why Saul was angry, right. I, I'm, they're, they're saying that I'm inferior to David, but that's not what's actually happening here. This, um, th- this, is, a, um, this is Hebrew poetry that they're using. I mean, it's a Hebrew parallelism. It's not meant to contrast one from the other. It's meant to say, they have killed thousands, and Saul would have known it. This would not have been unfamiliar language to Saul. He would have been fully aware of what this Hebrew poetry meant, but he... Uh, he heard it as contrasting him from David. Saul, aware of what this Hebrew poetry meant, that it's linking the two and going, they have taken down thousands. He hears as contrasting. He hears it as contrasting, not because he's unfamiliar, but why? Uh, out of just an innate insecurity. And I, I think it's, if, if we could just extend some grace to Saul right here, um, It's an understandable insecurity, right? Uh, I mean, if we think back to the David and Goliath story, uh, here's what happened. Goliath comes out and says, give me a man to fight. And what does Saul do? Shrinks back in fear. Shrivels up in fear and runs while David steps forward, takes him down, takes down Goliath. Uh, And and if I'm in Saul's shoes, I'm probably going to live with some innate insecurity relative to David as well. But either way, this, is the, this insecurity is what, uh, it's the soil that his envy grows out of. And here, um, I'm going to call this a subtle symptom. Here is the first subtle symptom that we see of envy in David's life. Uh, he hears what he wants to hear. They said, Saul and David took down thousands. Saul heard, David's the one you want. He heard what he wanted to hear. And we, like, who in this room doesn't know what that's like? Like, who's never been, a, like, who has not heard uh, your boss say to you, hey, you're doing a good job on this project, and you heard, glad to see you're turning it around? Who, who in here doesn't know this conversation? Husband, guy you're dating, says, hey, I, I really think you look pretty in that shirt. And you hear, I sure wish you dressed more like her. I'm sorry, was that too close to home? Who, who's never had this? Who doesn't know what it's like to to hear what you want to, to hear in your own mind? If we think back to verse 6, we scrolled back there. The women came out of all the cities singing and dancing to meet who? Saul. And he hears, David's the one they want. David is the one they... Want. So the thing about envy, the thing about envy is that it's all about a life of comparison, right? How do I stack up to the next person? And this is a filter, becomes the filter that we see and think and hear all of life through. And either it's going to lead one of two directions in our life. Like when our life is marked by how do I stack up compared to the next person, it's going to lead shame and insecurity, self-pity, Pride, arrogance, condemnation. And as we get older, in particular at the stage of life that a lot of us are, right? Um, As we get older and we uh, become kind of that middle-aged adult, I just turned 40 so I can call anybody I want middle-aged now. Um, Like it doesn't go away, we just get better at hiding it. Well, like my, my kids, um, they, they don't hide it. Like, I have this sweet eight year old. Like, she is just the most precious, gentle, kind little soul who will look you in the eye and tell you, I'm better dark than you are. Like, she doesn't have the adult filter yet. But here's the thing it's cute and funny when my eight year old does it. But when the undercurrent of your life is how do I stack up to the next person? Marriages have been destroyed. Careers have ended. It's not funny anymore. It needs to be dealt with. That's not all. It's not just comparison. Let's keep going. Verse 9. And Saul eyed David from that day on. The word eyed here, fascinating what I think is happening in this text right here. When he says he eyed David, that that word is uh, iniquity, iniquity to David. That he, and it's, listen, it is notoriously difficult to interpret this little phrase, what's going on here, and to really understand it, you have to enter into Saul's shoes and to look at David through the lens of Saul when it says in Saul, iniquity David from that day on. And I think our best guess at what's going on here is that he, he's saying he viewed David as guilty, even though David had done nothing wrong. David had done nothing wrong. All he had done was grab a sling and a stone and go take down Goliath. And Saul looks at him as guilty. He looks at David as guilty, which is the second thing about re, uh, envy. Uh, It doesn't just lead to comparison, it leads to resentment. I said it was hard to recognize that envy, when it's the undercurrent of our souls, when it's hidden in the shadows, it's hard to recognize. So I'm going to give you two symptoms, two symptoms that will come to the surface um, that we might be able to spot as manifestations of envy. Here they are, comparison, resentment. Comparison means that I'm never able to enjoy what I have. Because of what you have, I'm never able to enjoy what I have. Or because of what I don't have, I'm never able to enjoy what I do have. And then resentment, I'm never able to enjoy what you have. Because I don't have it too. And if I don't have it too, you shouldn't have it. And if you shouldn't have it, I can't enjoy what you have. Comparison and resentment. And if I I could tell you guys something privately, as private as this can be, in my uh, 40 years, um, I'm I'm not comfortable saying that yet. But in my 40 years, um, comparison and resentment have been good friends of mine. They have been friends that I don't want in my life, and yet they keep finding their way to the dining room table. This is uh, th- this is one of those many times where. We open the text, um, and as just one of your pastors, have to preach on a topic that I don't know well experientially. So the first thing we learn, symptoms are comparison and resentment. And when they go unchecked, we get to verse 10, and another verse notoriously difficult to interpret. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And he raved, uncontrollable speech. He raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hands. There's a wordplay in the Hebrew going on there that David was holding the lyre, Saul the spear. And Saul hurled at the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall but David evaded him twice. There's this contrast here being set up from David and Saul where David, there's harmony and rhythm and beauty. And Saul, there's uncontrollable speech and a spear. And this harmful spirit that God sends, this is where it's difficult to interpret. The, the word is a range of meanings, and, and one of the uh, meanings is terrifying Right, that we already knew Saul was afraid of David, but now he's got this terrified spirit within him. And I, um, I wanna, I'm going to let Tim Keller, in a sermon he preached on this verse, this is what he had to say was going on in verses 10 and 11. So there's already a spirit of terror in Saul because of his envy. So what's the spirit coming for? What's interesting is almost all the commentators agree on this, that in the beginning... You do envy, but eventually envy does you. You start with a spirit of envy, but eventually it turns into a spirit of envy. There's another way that he said it, um, that, that is God was handing him over to what was inside of him already. Um, what started out as a headache turned into a tumor. What started out as a small pain that the Tylenol can deal with land you in a hospital room having surgery. It took him over. It overran him. The results were that he was in a rave, losing control of his speech, and results in a spear. Saul doing something that in his right mind he would have never done. And if we could pause for a minute and um, think about the, uh, the, the diabetes analogy for envy, how it just sits under the surface and all of a sudden it just takes you over. This is one chapter later. This is 1 Samuel 18, right? 1 Samuel 18, yeah, 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 17, what, what did Saul do when Goliath, I mean, when David came forward to fight Goliath? He he gave him his armor. In one chapter, one little uh, let's go down the ancient highway as women come out to sing, and it goes from, I want to give you my armor so that you'll be protected when you go and fight David to uh, fight Goliath to I'm going to hurl my spear at you. I mean, just just like that. Just like that. The point is that Saul became a slave to his envies. Right? Had to be king, losing it, lost control. And this is where the, the Bible really gets... A bad rap for being kind of ancient, irrelevant. Uh, What this is a three thousand year old story. What does it have to do with my life today? But but here is I think one evidence for the truth of the Bible, for it being reliable. That when you uh, if you were to slow down, read it, it, what you're going to find is this: the way that it diagnoses humanity transcends culture and time. Transcends it. What's true then is true. Um, Today, And if you want to understand yourself, you want to understand what motivates you, what you have to have, what you think you need to be happy, live a full life, look at your envies. Look at your envies. If you want to know what you think you need to live a full, satisfied life, look at your envies. It was true then. It's true today. And if I could slow down and say it like this, because... uh, all of us in this room can become Saul pretty quick. All of us in this room have the potential to become slaves to our comparisons and our resentments. All of us. So if this is true, is there anything that can be done about it? There is. And it's found in what one commentator called the theological center of the Saul-David story. Let's keep reading verse 12. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. Saul was afraid of David, afraid enough to send him out into battle. And why was he afraid? Five words. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And these five words are what one commentator said is the theological center, the theological theme that threads and runs through the entire narrative of Saul and David. David. Here's the thing. It's not just the theological theme thread center of the Saul-David narrative. It's also the theological center of the Bible. It sits as the heart of and the central theme of the Bible that this would not be, you see, this would not be the last time the Jews would say, I want a king like the nations. This wouldn't be the last time. Because a thousand years later, another Jewish leader would come, a man Like David, who the Lord was with. A man like David, who was innocent, but treated guilty. A man who, when he was put before the people by Pilate, said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests religious leaders answered we have no king but who what's the word on the screen behind me caesar we have no king but caesar what are they saying we've got a king we've got the king we've got the nation's king that we want we've got our king caesar we have our king we have what we want they're 16 so they delivered him so he delivered Uh, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And here here is where we get to the difference in Saul and Jesus, David and Jesus, I'm sorry. Unlike Saul, their spear didn't miss. Unlike Saul, their spear didn't miss. Jonathan Edwards, on a sermon on this text, he said, When we look at the life, and in particular the death of Jesus you want to know what we see? As he stepped forward and he received the spear of the people, we see the complete opposite of envy. We see the complete counter to envy. And Philippians 2, that he possessed the throne, if you will, and he gave it up. John 17 shared eternal glory with his father, glory that he deserved And he gave it up so that you and I could share in glory that we don't deserve. In the life and death of Jesus, we see the complete opposite of envy. And you know what his motivation was? You know what his motivation was? What's the most overused verse in the Bible? For God so what? Loved the world. What was his motivation? For God so loved the world which is why we can go back now to Samuel and find in this ancient story something pretty helpful for our modern lives. Let's read verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. All of Israel, they all loved David. And the way that it's written, this little Hebrew grammatical thing that the author does is screaming out for us to see the contrast between Israel and Israel and saw between love and envy, that they sit in counter to one another. We've all been to weddings. What does First Corinthians say? Love does not envy. doesn't envy. So here's the thing that, uh, and, I, and I think what we can see in the way that this is written here, certainly in Corinthians, but I, we can see it in the contrast in Samuel, that love and envy simply cannot coexist. Love and envy simply do not, cannot coexist. One is always driving out the other. Envy is pushing love out or love is pushing envy out, but they're never neutral. They never just sit together. If I can't talk, if I can't come to your house because I want what you have, that's envy driving out my love for you. If I can't celebrate what you have in your life because I don't have it too, it's envy driving love out in my life, if we can't talk money without me feeling like life just isn't fair. So, what do we do? Well, I think the contrast is helpful. Here's what we do we crowd out envy with love. You, you want to kill envy? Crowd it out with love. There's only so much room in your life, your heart's only got so much room in it. You crowd out envy with love. How do we do it? Um, there are a thousand things we could talk about. I'm going to give you three because y'all would leave if I kept going. I'm going to give you three, and there are three Cs. I don't usually do it, but this is a lot of fun for me. (laughs) Communion, confession, celebration. Communion. Communion. In a minute, we're going to come to the table. In a minute, I'm going to pray. I'm going to say amen, and we're going to come to the table. And as you do, um, uh, we're going to have this prayer that we pray. And it finishes like this. We pray it. Uh, almost every week, that we 'd be conformed to god 's what self giving love, and as you come, as you come to the table, when you come and you feast on Christ in this meal, the love of Christ is crowning out envies in your life, because envy is this: you being consumed by envy, me being consumed by envy is me it 's us together saying this jesus isn 't enough. Like, I don't have enough because I have him, I need him, plus what my neighbor has. It's not enough for me. And at this meal, you know what you know what's happening? Jesus is saying to you, "Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I am. For God so loved the world that I'd give myself up for you. That if you come, you would feast on me and I'll crowd envy out. Second, confession. Confession, um, this week, there's an action step for you. You need an action step. I'm going to give you an action step Th- this week. Perish a friend. Confess what you're envious of. And listen, don't and d- don't be generic. Don't don't be like, oh, if I just had more, you know, money and time, or like, be specific. Like it's a struggle. Like when I moved to, to I'll, I'll confess, I'll, I'll give you an example. When I lived in Dallas. Um, just about all of them. I came to Dallas, I'm sorry, three and a half, four years ago now. Uh, when we lived in Dallas, uh, most of my friends all lived in a house pretty similar to mine. When I got here, that was no longer true. and It was a struggle. It was. Be specific. Be specific. Don't be generic. Be specific. And then third, celebration. Celebrate someone who has what you want celebrate someone who has what you want. Practice, practice being grateful to God for what they have, even if you don't have it. And that doesn't mean that you can't pray for something. doesn't mean, like, I don't want to get too specific here because um, I'm not trying to, like, target somebody and miss everybody else, but, like, there are a thousand things that we, that we long for in our life that we can celebrate when someone else has and still pray that God would give it to us too. If you've ever wrestled with infertility or had miscarriages, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And as we do, as we fight this together, communion, confession, celebration, here's what's happening. We give one another a glimpse of eternity because you know this, one day, envy won't exist. Like, en- envy is not eternal, Um, It began in Genesis 3, uh, and it will end when Christ returns. Envy is not eternal. You know, when we practice killing envy, we are giving one another a glimpse of what eternity is going to be like. And we are preparing one another for life 10,000 years from now. We're prepping one another to live 10,000 years from now, that day when, what does Revelation 21 say? God will be with man. He will come and make a dwelling place with us. He will come and make a home. We're prepping one another for that day. And we can either, as a community, be active in killing envy or watch envy be active in killing us. Those are the two choices. That's what's on the table. We get one chapter, one run as a community at being a people who prep one another for eternity. So let's be that people, prepping one another for the day when envy is a distant memory, that day when envy is the forgotten friend who doesn't have a place at the dining room table any longer. Let's pray. Father, I know that... um, John 3 is an overused verse but praise your holy and majestic name that it's there for your love of your love for us sent your son into the world Father I know that India is sitting under the surface in many of our lives. It is uh, hard to see. I pray, that, um, I pray that in rich relationship, in community, in friendship inside the church, it might become more visible. We might become more and more aware of it. And may we be a people active in killing it so that it won't be active in killing us. And may we be a people who prep one another for the day when envy no longer exists. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.